Thank you, Pam. I would encourage you to keep your Red Pew Bibles open to Matthew 5. I want to look again at that uh, text that Pam read so beautifully, even in the dark. We've got to turn on her lamp next time. I'm sorry about that. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Jesus is in the speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in my Bible, it's all red. So he's been doing a lot of talking since the very beginning of Matthew 5. And he makes the point that we should not, as the people of God, make oaths, whether it be to heaven or to earth or to Jerusalem. In fact, he simply says, our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Why do you think Jesus feels the need to tell his first century, primarily Jewish audience that they shouldn't make oaths according to heaven or earth or according to Jerusalem? Well, in the first century, there was this complicated uh, method of oaths that people would take. And if you took an oath according to heaven or according to Jerusalem or according to the earth, well, it was a serious oath, but it wasn't necessarily binding. Only the, earth that were, the oaths that were made to God were considered to be binding because they believed, well, if you made an oath to God, well, then God would punish you if you did not keep your vow or your oath. But in our text, Jesus is making the point to let all of those here that understand that, please, you know, making a vow to heaven or to earth or to Jerusalem is like making an oath to God because, well, heaven is God's throne, the earth is God's footstool, and Jerusalem is the city of God. Making an oath to any of these things is like making an oath to God. And as his followers, our yes should simply be yes, and our no should simply be no. We shouldn't have to have these complicated system of oaths. We should be people of our word that when we say we're going to do something, we don't have to swear we're going to do it. We're just going to do it. I'll be real clear here for those of you who are lawyers out there. I know we've got a few. Uh, you know, he's not saying that we shouldn't ever take an oath like you would in the court of law where you say, I promise to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. He's not condemning all oaths. He's just simply saying that as his followers, oaths should be unnecessary. We should simply say what we mean and mean what we say and follow through on all the commitments we make. Notice in your Bibles, though, in Matthew 5, Right before this condemnation of of different types of oaths, Jesus actually speaks and condemns many types of divorce. Listen what it says in Matthew 5, 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery adultery. These are pretty tough words. And Jesus says this because, well, there was a a real problem with divorce in the first century. There was a a school, a Jewish rabbi school that taught that you could divorce a woman for just about any reason. And that is not at all what God intended. In fact, Jesus will later say in, in Mark 10, when he's talking about marriage, he says, you know, God permitted or allowed you to get divorced because your hearts were hardened. But from the very beginning of creation, God intended that a man and a woman would come together and be one flesh and, and that nothing would separate their love, that they have become one flesh together. Therefore, what God has brought together, let no one separate, Jesus says in Mark 10. But Jesus feels the need to speak to divorce because, there, well, divorce was a problem in the first century, and the fact is it's a problem in the 21st century as well today. The other day, my wife, uh, Sarah, was talking to my youngest child, John, and a third of John's class at school, uh, all of their parents are divorced, a third of them, it's pretty high percentage. And, and so John was asking, mom, what is divorce and 
why does divorce happen? Will you and dad ever get divorced? And Sarah's like, oh, no, no, we love each other. You know, by God's grace, we're going to stay together. She's got a lot of patience, Sarah does, so keep praying for her. But anyway, she stays married to me. But she began to explain to him what divorce is, how it happens, you know, and what are the repercussions of divorce. Now, in the Bible, there are reasons for divorce. There are several reasons for divorce. But unfortunately, in our country today, many people are, well, they're not keeping their vows. They're not keeping their oaths. They're getting divorced for reasons they're not found in Scripture. So how can we make sure that we're the kind of people who always keep our oaths, who always keep our vows? After Sarah was kind of debriefing me about this conversation she had with John, she shared with me, you know, how grateful she is, and I am as well, that both of our parents remained married, you know, for over 50 years. Uh, My parents, in fact, uh, my mom kept her commitment to my father until death do us part, until my father died just a year ago. And so we're grateful that we have that model of, of of a great marriage. But the fact is that as we talked about it, many of our friends, even many of our family members, well, they've gotten divorced. And no one gets married with the intention of getting divorced later. Divorce is very painful. In fact, if you've ever experienced divorce, there's a wonderful ministry called Divorce Care that our church runs uh, every now and then. And you can go to their website, website, divorcecare.com, and you can find where divorce care is being offered in our community today, helping you process what the Bible says about the pain of divorce and and how we are to, to move forward. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin in Scripture. Divorce happens because, well, you've got two sinners who come together in marriage, and the fact is that Well, it doesn't always work out. Divorce is painful. No one likes divorce. So how can we make sure that we're the kind of people who keep our oaths, the kind of people who our yes is yes and our no is no, not only in our marriages, but in all of our relationships and in our business partnerships and our friendships and our family relationships, that we're the kind of people that that we know people can rely upon, that our yes is yes and our no is no, that we keep our vows, we keep our oaths. Well, in the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, the answer to how we can make sure we keep our oaths is hesed, hesed. Hesed is something that, well, as we continue to look at the story of King David, a man after God's own heart, hesed was, well, David had hesed. And hesed hesed proves that makes, helps make David the kind of person who keeps his oath. To find out what hesed is, where it comes from, and how it makes all the difference in our lives today, I would encourage you to turn in your Red Pew Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 10, or chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9. It may be found on page 332 of your Red Pew Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 9. But before I read God's word, let's call upon His Spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for for your hesed, for your faithfulness to us. That we have this written story of King David and how he proved to have hesed as well to his good friend Jonathan and caring for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. God, I pray that as we read this familiar story that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you, that we might learn all that you want us to learn so that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. Second Samuel chapter nine, beginning with verse one. Listen to the word of the Lord. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. 
And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still not, still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had uh, 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll look again at verse 1 of our text in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The Hebrew word for kindness there is hesed. It's actually pronounced chesed, chesed. My wife said, don't say that too many times or it sounds like you're going to spit, uh, which is kind of rude. In fact, it reminds me of the olden days when people would spit in their hands and they would shake on it, you know, it's called a spit shake, you know, spit bow. Uh, fortunately, they don't do that, but that was worse. That's better than what they used to do. They used to actually cut their hands and they would make a blood vow and they would shake hands and share each other's blood. Fortunately, today, if we make a, a deal, we just sign our names or we give our word and that, that's good enough, thanks be to God. Chesed, though, it can be translated in many ways. Here it's translated as kindness. It can also be translated as steadfast love, loyal love, faithfulness. In fact, in our call to worship that we had just a moment ago in Psalm 136, verse 1, we read, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love, His chesed, endures forever. Chesed comes from God. It's this steadfast love that truly endures forever. And if you'll remember, uh, on Labor Day weekend, uh, we, we were looking at 1 Samuel 20 and the wonderful friendship that Jonathan and David had together. And if you remember that sermon, because I know it, it changed your life, in 1 Samuel 20, sure, don't forget that, that was such a good sermon. No, I'm just kidding. 1 Samuel 20, though, we read the story of the covenant that was made between Jonathan and David. And there again, we find that word, hesed. Read, reading from 1 Samuel 20, verse 13 to 16, David, as you recall, is in trouble because King Saul wants to kill David. 
But David's best friend is Jonathan, the son of King Saul. And so David, in desperation, goes to Jonathan, King Saul's son. He said, could you help me, please? And Jonathan decides he's going to help his best friend David. And then he has David make a vow to him. We read about it in 1 Samuel 20, verse 13 to 16. David says, I mean, Jonathan says to David, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love, the hesed of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love, your, your hesed from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of his servants of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Notice that David is the one who is in trouble But Jonathan is the one who makes a covenant with David, saying, be sure that when you come into power, you show hesed, steadfast love to my descendants. Even though Jonathan is the son of King Saul, he seems to know that that David will eventually be king of of all of Israel. And so he pleads for Jonathan to remember him, to, to show me that steadfast love. Well, by 2 Samuel chapter 9, both King Saul and Jonathan have been killed in battle. And eventually, as we saw last week in 2 Samuel 5, David is anointed as the, well, as the, the new king of Israel. And after David becomes the king of Israel, he begins to conquer the enemies that surround Israel. He, he conquers the Jebusites, then he conquers the Philistines, then he conquers the Moabites, then he conquers the Syrians, and eventually the Edomites. Wherever David went, God was with him and gave him victory in battle. And now that there is peace in the land, David wants to make good on the covenant that he made to his best friend, Jonathan. He wants to to show hesed, steadfast love, kindness to the descendants of Jonathan. Now, a lot of scholars would point out that to do such a thing in in these ancient times actually would be quite dangerous. See, the typical pattern is that when someone would become a king and they were from a different family than the predecessor, that normally the new king would kill all of the family's members of his predecessor because he didn't want the descendants of his predecessor to someday try to make a claim on the throne. And if there was anybody who who could try to make a claim, Mephibosheth could somehow make a claim to the throne. In fact, the reason that it took seven years after the death of Saul and Jonathan for David finally to become the king of the 12 tribes of Israel is because, as you may remember, Abner, uh, one of the leading soldiers in Saul's army, tried to make Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, the new king of the tribes of Israel. And it wasn't until Ishbosheth was killed that finally the 12 tribes of Israel said, okay, Saul, David, will you now be our king? After all, Mephibosheth, everybody knew, was crippled. He, he was real no phys- wasn't a real physical threat to David. But several scholars point out that, well, if Mephibosheth had stayed in the northern kingdom of Israel, even though he was crippled and not a physical threat to David, through his relationships and through his connections, he could have rallied some people to his cause to make him the king, the new king of Israel. So in some ways, it's a little bit dangerous for, for David to show kindness or covenant kindness. In fact, some scholars actually say, well, well while it's dangerous, it's actually quite strategic for, for David to invite Mephibosheth to his table so that he would always have an eye over him. Because the idea is that, well, if Mephibosheth had stayed in the northern kingdom of Israel, he could have rallied some people to his cause. But, but now that Mephibosheth is in, well, as he's in David's household, there's no way that he could rally people to his cause because David has got a watchful eye over him. I personally think some of these scholars have seen the Godfather movies too many times. <laughs> if you remember, uh, Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino, is in his house, his old father's house, and he makes this statement. He says, you know, my dad... He taught me a lot of things in this house. He taught me to keep my friends close, but my enemies closer. 
That's my best Al Pacino, not very good. But anyway, yeah, that's the thought, right? Let's keep our enemies closer so that we can see what they're doing. But I don't think that's what's going on at all here because of what we read. The second time Hesed shows up is what's in verse 3 of our text. We read that after calling Ziba, the servant of Saul, to his house, David says to Ziba, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? The kindness, the hesed of God to him. David knew that hesed, it comes from God. Hesed, kindness, steadfast love, it's ultimately from God. God is the originator of hesed, of steadfast love. Because as David reflected on his own life, he saw how time and time again, God had shown him steadfast love, hesed, covenant kindness. You remember, David was the youngest son of Jesse. He was the eighth son. He was on the outside. In fact, he was herding his father's sheep when Samuel came to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the next king of Israel. And Jesse brings one son after another after another. He doesn't even think to bring David in because David's just a teenage boy at the time. But God chose David a shepherd boy eventually to become the shepherd of the nation of Israel, the king of the people of Israel. And as David reflected on his own life, he could see how time and time again, God had shown him great steadfast love, great hesed in victory after one, after, in one battle after another. It was God's steadfast love. It was his covenant kindness that allowed him to, to kill Goliath and, and survive that great battle. It, it was the covenant kindness of God that allowed him to conquer the Philistines and the Jebusites and the Syrians and the Edomites and the Moabites. Yes, David was not afraid of Mephibosheth because he was grounded in the steadfast love of God. David knew just how much God loved him. Do you know just how much God loves us? Look again at what David says to Mephibosheth in our text when he greets him face to face. It's picking up in verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. Mephibosheth is afraid because Mephibosheth knows how these things tend to play out. Because his grandfather, King Saul, was the enemy of King David, he's thinking that maybe today is my last day on this earth, that maybe King David wants to exact some type of revenge on me. Mephibosheth is afraid that he's been brought before King David to be killed, but that's not David's plan. That wasn't a part of the covenant that David had made with Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father. So David says to Mephibosheth, do not fear, for I will show you kindness, hesed, for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Notice that David is inviting Mephibosheth to sit at his table always. He was treating Mephibosheth as if he was one of his own sons because only the son of the kings, only the sons of the king would get to sit at the king's table always. Mephibosheth is being shown in great hesed by David. David is demonstrating great hesed to Mephibosheth by inviting him to sit at his table always. Isn't that what Jesus does for us? He demonstrates God's hesed, God's steadfast love by by inviting us to come to his table 
always. For as we come to this table, we're reminded of God's great love for us, for it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he, that he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, we read that, that Jesus took a cup, and, and as he poured, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant poured in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup of the Lord's table, we're reminded of of God's great love for us, that Christ's body was was given for us, that Christ's blood was shed for us. Physical reminders of God's amazing grace. And and we come to this table and we experience that love. This table is a a preview of the heavenly banquet when the bride of Christ, his church, will, will dine with him always in the splendor of his holy presence. Yes, Jesus invites us as sons and daughters of God, to dine at his table, always. The bread and the wine, they remind us of God's love. The bread and the wine, they ultimately point to the cross, the greatest demonstration the world has ever seen of of God's great love for us. For Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, Then he died on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. God doesn't love us this much. He loves us this much. Jesus says in John 15, no greater love is there than this than a man who is willing to die for his friends. His body given to us. His blood shed for us. The bread, the wine, the cross, and ultimately the empty tomb Help point to the everlasting nature of our God's love. God's steadfast love truly endures forever, for for nothing can separate us from love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Yes, when you're grounded in the hesed of God, the steadfast love of God that you know that endures forever, then you are finally able to show hesed, steadfast love, kindness, covenant kindness to those who may not be able to do anything to you in return. There's nothing that Mephibosheth can offer David, is there? Mephibosheth is crippled, he's desperate, he needs the alms and the handouts of others. But but David chooses to show hesed, hesed to Mephibosheth, remembering the covenant that he made to Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, but also ever mindful of the the covenant kindness and and the steadfast love that God has shown to David throughout his life. In fact, if you look at through the all of the Bible, you'll see that time and time again, the people of God We often fall short. We often fail to be faithful, but God is always faithful to us and his love for us. We see this in the story in Exodus with the story of Moses and how, well, God has delivered them. He's allowed them to cross through the Red Sea. He's killed Pharaoh's army, the most powerful army at the time. And now Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai and he's receiving instructions from God. And while while Moses is away, the people become anxious. And even though they're eating manna from heaven every day, they get anxious and they wonder, we don't know what's happened to Moses. We need gods now to lead us. And so they take the gold that God had literally just given to them from the Egyptians, this gold that God gave to them. And they go to Aaron, Moses' older brother, and they say, look, could you make us some gods for us so that we might pray to them, so that we might worship them, so that these gods might save us? people of God break two of the first commandments of the Ten Commandments of having different gods and making idols and worshiping them. But God doesn't destroy them. He thinks about it, but Moses Moses talks him out of it. He he thinks about it, but God wants to show his hesed, his steadfast love. You see, hesed is a choice. It's not a feeling. 
It's the choice to show covenant kindness. It's the choice to show steadfast love, even when others are unfaithful. Jesus demonstrated hesed to his disciples, did he not? You remember the story, we read about it in in the gospel accounts that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was in the garden of Gethsemane and and the the soldiers come and they arrest Jesus. And what happens? The disciples, they all scatter in fear. And Peter, the leader of the disciples, the, the, the most secure disciple, or seemingly so, even Peter denies Jesus three times before the cock crows. But then God and Jesus in his hesed, his steadfast love, ultimately reinstates Peter at the very end of the Gospel of John. We can only show hesed when we realize just how much hesed God has given to us. Yes, God has demonstrated to be a God who loves us always, no matter what we've done. We rest in the hesed, the steadfast love, the covenant kindness of our God. And as people who who follow this God, we want to be the kind of people who demonstrate hesed, who demonstrate steadfast love to others, even if they can't do anything for us. We want to make the choice to be the kind of people who keep our covenant vows. For a person after God's own heart, as we can see in the story of David, is someone who keeps their promises, who is reliable, who shows steadfast love, covenant kindness, even when it's not convenient, even when we don't feel like it, but we make the choice because we're grateful for how God has made the choice to show his steadfast love to us. May all of our relationships, our marriages, our family relationships, our friendships, our business partnerships, may all of them be characterized by the hesed, the steadfast love, the covenant kindness of our loving God. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your hesed, your covenant kindness that we don't deserve, but you showed it to us anyway. That while we were yet sinners, Christ came and he, he did, did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience, the law of God, and then he died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins with his death on a cross. Then he conquered both sin and death with his resurrection on the third day. So we do not have to fear, Lord. We can walk in faith and know that you are the God who is always faithful to us. So Lord, help us to be faithful to others. Help us to show hesed, your steadfast love, to others so that you might receive all the glory. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen.